Um, it's really good to see you this morning. Um, welcome if you're, if you're visiting with us. You've joined us at a good time because we're going to start this morning a brand new teaching series called Family Values. It's on the screen here behind me. Um, most of us have a family, came from a family. Some of us like our families. Some of us maybe not so much. Um, but we all have certain things that we do in our family, certain things that we value as a family, certain things that we enjoy and traditions that we uphold in our own little family units. Some are quite normal. Curry on a Friday night, weekends away to the same places. Um, others are perhaps less than, than normal. Um, I posted on Facebook earlier in the week uh, and read it. It's another social media site, um, asking people for their strangest family tradition. And I had some interesting um, answers. I'm going to share a few with you now. One person mentioned that they have their quarterly, are you still alive, phone call with their family. <laughs> Which is nice. I mean, hopefully the conversation goes beyond, are you still alive? Um, somebody else mentioned that if they were ever sick or injured, they always went to the ocean. Um, not to die, but apparently the ocean makes everything better. So next time you're ill or have a cold, go to the seaside, apparently. Um, there were quite a lot of Christmas traditions. Uh, one person mentioned they were forced to wait till after dinner to open their presents. Oh, it's a shame, isn't it? Um, somebody else mentioned that they always drink seven bottles of wine at Christmas. Maybe be slightly concerned about that one. Um, Judith commented that her family always have a pork pie for breakfast on Christmas morning. So a nice light breakfast before Christmas dinner. Um, my favourite family tradition, however, came from Neil, who described a game they used to play, uh, which involved a towel, a dog bowl, a table and chairs, cushions, and an Alsatian dressed up as a shark in a scarf. <laughs> Apparently it was called Pirates, and... Um, Honestly, it sounds awesome. I really hope he'll teach Will you teach it to me, Neil? Will you? Thank you. <laughs> Play it with the youth. Um, in our household, we always celebrate the Eurovision Song Contest with a big party. It involves eating lots of different foods from around uh, Europe whilst watching some truly bizarre musical performances. Um, it's great fun, although my stomach disagrees the next day normally. Um, but these traditions are great. Aren't they? they give our family a sense of identity. They help to define us as a family. And so what we want to do in this series is um, think about the, the, the values, the traditions, the things that define us as the family of God together. Essentially, um, the question behind the title is this. What does it look like to be a part of God's family? Because... If you're a follower of Jesus, then you've been adopted into God's family. You may not have realised that this morning, but you have. It's true. On one occasion, while Jesus was teaching, his mother and his brothers came looking for him. And someone in the crowd said, your mother and brother are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And Jesus replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. 
Now, I don't know if at this point the disciples had an argument about, argument about which one was the mother. <laughs> you're the mother. No, you're the mother. I'll mother you in a minute. That'd be quite nice, wouldn't it, to be mothered? Um, probably, because that's, that's what the disciples are like. On another occasion, they were actually arguing about who would be the greatest. And Jesus called a little child to him and said, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So at times, Jesus refers to the disciples as brothers. Other times, he refers to them as children, normally depending on how they're behaving. But the language he uses to communicate with them conveys this idea of family. It was an idea that the disciples took to heart. John, in particular, in one of his letters, um, writes, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And the Apostle Paul, in his letters, he always refers to other believers as brothers and sisters. In Romans chapter 8, that incredible essay of encouragement that um, Paul writes. In fact, uh, Tim started our worship off this morning by reading from it. He says this, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slave so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Reminds me of the, the Lord's Prayer, which Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Notice it's not my Father, but it's our Father. We are in this together. We are his children and he is our father and so when we come to faith when we begin to follow Jesus when we give our life to him one of the questions um, it's important to ask ourselves is what does it mean for me to be a part of God's family because we've learned over many years what it looks like to be a part of our own families we know whose job it is to take the bins out we know what days to visit our parents or grandparents, which parent is more likely to give us sympathy, which one's more likely to give us money, um, which child will eat their dinner, which one will complain. We understand our, our place in our own family, but now we have a whole new family. What does it look like to be a part of this family? What's our place, our role, our responsibility? And what are the defining characteristics of God's family. So that's what we are going to be exploring together um, over the next few weeks in this series. So where do we start this morning? Well, the first thing I want you to know from the bottom of my heart, if you don't know it already, is that when you come, when it comes to God's family, you are accepted and not rejected. I've written it on the fridge so you won't forget. You're accepted, not rejected. Very simply, God wants you here. You are welcome. More than that, God is pleased that you are a part of his family. He loves you. He loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die in your place, to make a way for us to find him again. And Jesus tells a story about the Father's love for us. It's probably a very familiar story to many of us here. It was about a son who left his father's house. 
You might remember it. The son demanded his inheritance. He said, I want nothing more to do with you or your house. I'm done. I'm out. It's over. And he went to live his own way. He went to do his own thing. But when the life he had chosen didn't work out, perhaps quite as he was expecting, he thought again about his father's home. He thought about all that he'd lost, all that he had. And he made a decision to return. And he was unsure. He wasn't confident of the welcome that he would receive when he returned. He knew he needed to seek his father's forgiveness. And so he begins to prepare a speech in his head. He begins to think of what he's going to say when he gets back there. And it goes like this. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. But then Jesus goes on and says that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. While he was still a long way off. It tells you something right there, doesn't it, about the father. If he saw him when he was still a long way off, he must have been looking for him. He must have been waiting for him. He must have been standing out away from the house waiting for his son to return. Where is he? Is he coming home today? Is today the day? And on this particular day, he spots him. And he says to him, it says his heart is filled with compassion for him. And he runs to him. And he throws his arms around him and he kisses him. And the son says to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he could even get to the bit about asking to become a servant, the father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they begin to celebrate. The father is overjoyed that his son has returned home. And you know, the, the amazing thing about this story is it's not just some abstract illustration. This is the reality of God's feelings towards us. Jesus said before he told the story, there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. God is pleased that you are a part of his family. He misses you when you wander away. He waits for you to return in order to throw his loving arms around you and say, welcome home. It's a nice message. It's a, it's a good story. Perhaps some of you needed to hear that message this morning. God loves you. He welcomes you into his family, whether you're just discovering him for the first time or whether you're rediscovering for the 50th time. He loves you. It's true. But what's really interesting to me about this story is that Jesus doesn't end it here. The credits don't roll as the sun embraces the father and the sun sets in the distance behind them. Jesus carries on. He adds a little bit more. In fact, he injects some family drama into the story. He introduces us to the older brother. Now, the older brother was, was good. He was upright. He was faithful. He, he had remained loyal to his father. He hadn't run off. He hadn't turned his back on his family. He'd stayed at home. In fact, right now, he was out in the field, working 
for his father, bringing in the harvest. And as he's slaving away in the distance, he hears music. So he calls one of the servants, Tony, I think his name was. He says, hey, Tony, (laughs) what's going on? Sometimes I add bits. It's good to (laughs) have it open in your Bible. (laughs) Um, And Tony replies, he says, it's amazing. Your brother's returned home. Your dad's over the moon. He's killed the fattened calf. There's There's a party happening right now. You've got to come and join in. Come on. But then Jesus says this. He says, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. He became angry and he refused to go in. I ain't going to party with him. No way. And so the father goes out and he pleads with him. He says, come and join in. The, the family's back together. And the older son says, look, dad, all these years I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders. You never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. When this, this son of yours, I like that, son of, not my brother, <laughs> he's yours, he's your responsibility, he's your fault who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. Daisy, the father... (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. Poor Daisy. The father's gentle with him. He says, my son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that's where the story ends, and it's a good story. Um, I'd like to have known what happened to the older brother, what became of him, because, you know, from the context, we know that the, the father in the story is God. He represents God. And so the sons, the younger brother, the older brother, they, they represent us and our interactions with the father. And I just wonder, as we read this story, or reflect on this story again, This morning, which son it is that we identify with the most? Because if you're like me, um, you want to see yourself as the younger one, right? The one who's coming home, the one who gets to eat Daisy. Um, But sometimes, sometimes I think actually maybe I'm more like the older brother who is struggling to come to terms with the father's radical acceptance of his younger brother. Because, you know, here's the thing. If we're a part of God's family, we're not only accepted by the Father, but we are expected to be accepting. If we've been welcomed into God's family with open arms as his children, then surely we are to do the same for others. To be on the lookout for those who might want to return home, those who might be looking desperate for forgiveness, not knowing that God has so much more in store for them. You see, the older brother, he struggled to see past what his younger brother had done. He saw him really as the younger brother saw himself, as as sinful, as an outcast, as someone who could never have a place in the father's home, except maybe as a servant. The father's heart, on the other hand, was to see him elevated, to re-establish to the position of a son before he'd even done anything to atone for his misbehavior. 
He'd stuck a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and a robe on his back. And he'd done nothing to deserve it. But he was accepted nonetheless. Sounds a lot like grace, doesn't it? But the older brother, he wanted to keep him at arm's length. He's a sinner. Leave him to his sin. Look at what he has done. He doesn't deserve this. I never left your side. I was good. I stayed with you. But him? (laughs) Really? Really? And I just wonder if sometimes we're ever guilty of doing the same. Of being willing to leave people to their sin when God wants us to embrace them on his behalf. I came across, um, as I was thinking about this message this week and and, and reflecting on what what I might say, I came across a verse in Romans, Romans 15, um, uh, verse 7, and it says this, it says, Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. It's a really simple verse, good one to kind of memorize. The message paraphrase puts it this way. It says, so, so reach out and welcome one another to God's glory. Jesus did it. Now you do it. And Paul originally wrote this to the, the early church. And very much like today, the early church existed uh, and grew up in a deeply divided world. There were many things that separated people from each other. Um, religion for example, was a a major cause of dispute. Even within Judaism, there were many different sects, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the the Zealot, all with their own biases and their own beliefs. Nationality was another great divider. Romans and Greeks and Israelites and Judeans and Samaritans all living alongside each other. Class was another issue. Upper class, the landowners, the government officials, the ranking officers... Middle class who were merchants and artisans, then the, the uh, working class, the lower class who were unskilled laborers and farmers, and the underclass who were servants and slaves. And the divide between rich and poor was, was vast. Jesus speaks about it um, often. And this is the world the church grew up in. But maybe the biggest division that existed in the church itself was a division between the Jewish and the non-Jewish believers, the Jewish and the non-Jewish followers of Jesus. You see, on the one hand, you had um, those who had grown up in the Jewish faith. They were steeped in tradition. They studied the Torah. They learned the commandments. They observed the Jewish holy days and festivals. They ate the right things, said the right things. They gave a wide berth to anyone outside of their faith, those Gentile dogs that would defile them and make them unclean. And then on the other hand, you had those who had not grown up in the Jewish faith. Those who perhaps dabbled in religion and tried out different gods, but had no tradition to speak of. They ate what they wanted. Food that had been sacrificed to idols. They lived how they wanted. And they thought those with faith were a bit legalistic and uptight and judgy. And the thing is, they both found Jesus. Hallelujah. And now they were having to exist in the same space, attend the same meetings, be at the same worship times together. And this is where it got a little bit tricky, because it meant all of a sudden they were forced to confront some of their own prejudice about each other. 
And, you know, very often the people we want to spend time with the most are the people who are exactly the same as we are. The people who look just like us, the people who think like we do. We want to live in our own little bubble where the lifestyle choices we have chosen are affirmed by those around us and we never need to rub shoulders with those who might disagree with the choices that we make. It was true back then and I'm not sure much has changed. In fact, if anything, I think it's become easier and easier to do. You know, the social networks we use have algorithms built into them that learn our preferences, and they only show us the things that we like. We are constantly reaffirming our own bias when we use them. Advertisements are targeted directly to us now because our internet browser knows the sites that we visit and the things that we look at. And the global nature of communication means that we are easily able to connect with others and enjoy enjoy the same lifestyle choices we do. We can create communities of people around ourselves filled with people that are just like us. And that's what the Jewish and the Gentile believers wanted. That's the world they wanted to live in, but what they discovered was that God had accepted them both into his family. The older brother and the younger brother, if you like. And so Paul says to them, accept one another. What did he mean by this? Well, firstly, this word acceptance, it carries with it a responsibility. Acceptance is not the same as tolerance. Tolerance is learning to put up with something, right? It's learning to make the the best of a bad situation. Acceptance means that we are actively looking to welcome the other especially those that are different to ourselves, those who are older, those who are younger, those who are cleverer or meaner looking or poorer or richer or not from around here, those who think differently than we do. He says, accept one another. Because when it comes to the family of God, we're all one. We're all together in this. Paul writes in another one of his letters, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor is there male or female. We can all wear shoes. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, God isn't looking for us to build a church that looks the same as we do. Because that's not what the family of God looks like. God's family is messy. It's filled with people from every walk of life. The good, the bad, the ugly. I'm not pointing fingers. And of course, Jesus is our supreme example in all of this. When he walked the earth, the religious had issue with him because he spent time with people who were not religious. Those who didn't fit the mold the tax collectors, the sinners, the lepers, the social outcasts, the prostitutes, the down and the dirty, the lost and the lonely, the demon-possessed, the troubled, the disturbed, the disenfranchised, the disaffected, the disappointed. He spent time with all of them. He said, come to me all who are burdened and weary and I will give you rest. He says, whoever comes to me, I will not drive away. He Allowed people to reject him, of course, but the offer was made to everyone. And so the church, 
The place where God's family meets needs to learn this radical acceptance also. It needs to be a place where anyone can feel welcome. Paul goes on, he says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. And really what what he's doing here, he's, he's reminding them of their place in the family. You know, just like the older, the father said to the older brother in the story, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Earlier in Romans, um, it was read out in the service earlier on, it says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You're in. God has given you everything. He's restored you. He's redeemed you. He has forgiven you completely. He has turned your life around. You are his. He loves you. You are secure. His love for you is not predicated on good behavior or even our ability to live up to God's expectations of us. He loves us because he's our heavenly father. Again, in Romans, Paul writes, at just the right time. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't require that we clean up our lives or make vows to change or do anything to deserve his love. Just like the father and the lost son, he embraces us in our weakness, in our shame. He puts a ring on our finger and a robe on our shoulders and says, Welcome home, my child. And so... um, Earlier on, I said, you know, who do you identify with more? The, the, the younger brother or the older brother? The lost son or the older brother? But I think if we're not careful, we can end up being both. We can be the lost child that finds their way home, but then gets so comfortable in the father's house that we shut the doors so no one else can come in. We can be the lost son that finds their way home and then gets so comfortable in the house that we shut the doors so no one else can come in. Paul wants us to remember what it feels like when we found Jesus, so that when we encounter somebody else who is lost, we can embrace them with the love of God also. I was thinking about it uh, this week, and I, I worked out where we should be. We should be out with the Father, looking for those who want to come home. It's interesting, isn't it? The older son... He thought he was doing the father's work in the field, but the father's attention was on the lost son. Don't miss that, because I think sometimes we can get really busy doing God's work, but the father's attention is elsewhere, on the lost and the broken and the hurt and those that aren't here. When we find someone who's lost, we welcome them, we accept them, we demonstrate God's love for them, and then we come into the house and have a proper celebration. Then we eat Daisy. Then we head back out and look for the next one. But this time there's more of us. That's the Father's heart. That's the Father's heart. Paul concludes by saying that our acceptance of each other brings praise to God. You know, God's family might very well be the most diverse family in the whole world. When we come together, when we accept one another, when we learn to love each other with the love of Christ, it shows the world a different way. It introduces them to the reality 
of the kingdom of God. Not keep out, but come in. Not go away, but you are welcome here. We, we live in a world, in a country that is becoming increasingly intolerant of the outsider. Rejection is normal. We have unwanted children. We have unwanted elderly people. We have racial hatred. We have xenophobic attitude. And in the midst of all that noise, the family of God needs to proudly declare, you are welcome here. Thank you for the amen. No matter what you've done, or where you've come from, or who you are, or what you might have heard, God loves you, and so do we. And so where does this leave us this morning? I wonder if the band would come and join us as I just finish up my thought process here. I don't want you to misunderstand me this morning. I'm not trying to point the finger at anybody here, because I happen to think that this church... This little branch of God's family is very welcoming to the outsider. I know that many of you go out of your way to speak to people who arrive here. And I want you to know that when you do that, you're bringing glory to God. Truly. Your heart is beating with the Father's. We've said many times in the front that we want this church to be a place where people can belong before they believe. I know many of you helped to make that a reality. But I wonder if this week maybe we could just challenge ourselves to be on the lookout for the outsider. To perhaps speak to people that aren't like us. To make somebody feel accepted and not rejected in the name of Jesus. And maybe if we're feeling really, really brave, we could pray that God would reveal to us any prejudice that we might have towards others and then actively take steps to do something about it. Because, you know, we were all lost once until the Father saw us. As he was standing, watching, waiting, saw us and ran to embrace us in his loving arms. So this morning, I just want to encourage you, I just want to encourage us that we don't turn into that older brother that we don't be someone who wants to leave people to their sin and keep the blessings of God for ourselves. I want us to be the kind of people that are willing to embrace the outsider, to look for those that are lost and hurting and those that might be on a journey back to God. And while they're still a long way off, to run to them. Welcome home. This is where you belong. God loves you. Come in. Have this robe. (laughs) Can we do that together? I wonder if you'd stand with me. We'll just pray and the the band are going to lead us once again.